Hi, I'm Brian from Renovate, a ministry at Christ Chapel for young adults in Fort Worth, Texas. On today's podcast, Josh is talking about how the gospel should change the way we love each other. So get ready to hear about God's vision for community. Enjoy! Well, good evening. How are we doing? Very good. Um, all right, so we are in uh, the second week uh, of a series that we are doing on faith and work. And what that means is that we are uh, spending three weeks really diving in and looking at um, how the gospel shapes and changes and transforms uh, the way that we work, how we work, how we interact with those who work. Uh, and so I'm really excited about, about uh, what's going down uh, tonight. So if you will, uh, turn to John chapter 13. John 13, and as you're turning, um, I want to ask you a question. Have, have you ever thought uh, about where the term coworker came from? No? Um, I Googled it. I couldn't find anything. But here's my theory. Um, my theory is that somebody somewhere at some point in time um, was trying to figure out a description um, of, of the person they were trying to describe, right? And the word friend didn't apply, um, but enemy was too strong. And so they needed something in between. And they're like, coworker, that, 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 that makes sense, right? Um, because honestly, if, if you think about how um, the majority of people think about the people that they work with, there's, there's a certain shallowness to the relationship, right? Like even like when you talk about your work friends, you call them work friends. Like you feel the need to clarify that this isn't a real friend. I just call that a friend, but a work friend. This is just the person that I like the most at the place where I typically don't like the people, right? Like, like that's kind of how, how it works, right? Um, and when I think about that, I think, why? why? Why do we use terms like coworker or work friend and all this? Like, like, why is there kind of like a shallow nature to our relationships at work? Well, I think part of it is we don't view the people at work as actual community. We, we view them as people just kind of to endure for eight hours until we get to go home and hang out with the people that we want to hang out with. They're people that we just kind of tolerate and we kind of nod and laugh and say, huh, cool, man, uh, until we get to go hang with our real friends, right? And so we go to work and we're around all these people all day long, but we don't view them as actual community. They're just people to be avoided rather than people to be loved, Right? And I don't know about you, but that, that really bums me out. That, that bums me out that we go to work every single day and oftentimes we are around these people, but we don't have deep, rich, robust community. And one of the, one of the reasons why is because I read a, a recent study. And if you were to, to average out over like an 80-year lifespan, how much time you spend collectively like with your friends just kind of hanging out with like community that you want to hang out with... Um, Someone added up, and they added it up to 368 like full days. Like if you're to add up all the time that you spend getting brunch, hanging out, playing golf, watching games, just drinking coffee, whatever, right? 368 days of your life are spent with your friends. But guess how much is spent with your coworkers? 13 years in two days. 13 years in two days of your life is spent with the people that you work with. And for the majority of us, we go to work, not me because I work, work at a church with all my best, best friends, but for you guys, um, <laughs> I have to be careful because like, man, work, work friends are the worst, right? Um, no, I'm just kidding. 
But for a lot of people, we, we go to work, and what happens is we spend 13 years of our life just tolerating people instead of having deep, rich, robust community. That's a bummer. But here's the good news. The good news is I am a firm believer that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the ability to renew and transform our community at work. I really do. I, I think that there is a possibility where we can go to work and we look at the people at the, at the desk or the cube next to us and we see them as a person to be loved and cherished and poured into rather than a person just to be avoided. We see the people around us and they're no longer coworkers, but they could potentially become brothers and sisters. I, I think that's a possibility. And so the question that I want us to answer tonight is how do we get there? How does the gospel transform and renew our community at work in such a way that we spend the next 13 years of our life with people that we're seeing as actual community, right? And so that's kind of where, where we're going tonight to talk about kind of how we do that. But before we get there, um, I want to talk about kind of how we got to this place to begin with. How, how do we get to a place where where people kind of view their relationships at work in a, a kind of shallow, shallow way. And so um, let me start off by kind of explaining that. Here's the short answer. The short answer is that we have neglected to apply one of the most crucial commands of Jesus to our relationships at work. We neglect to apply one of the most crucial foundational commands of Christ to the people at work. That's the short answer. Here is the long answer. In John 13, um, Jesus is sitting at a table with his disciples having the Passover meal. And in a few hours, Jesus is about to be betrayed. He knows this. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. And then he's going to be eventually executed, right? And so Jesus, knowing that he only has a few hours left with his boys to kind of give them some last instruction, to kind of lay out his last words, um, he decides to say something incredibly, incredibly important. And we see it here in John 13, verse 34. And he says this, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is a huge deal. What he just said is a massive deal, but I can see on your faces, you're like, I don't think that's a huge deal. So let me explain to you why this is a groundbreaking, a perspective shifting. I mean, this is a massive deal, the massive command of what he says. For the longest time, um, the chil children of God um, had one very distinct, clear command when it, when it came to loving other people, right? And if you've spent any time in church at all, or maybe even if you've never been to church ever, you could probably finish my sentence, right? It's you love your neighbor as yourself. See, exactly. You guys know, right? You love your neighbor as yourself. You love your neighbor as yourself. That for the longest time was the, like, the, the golden rule, the command, like that's how you love people, right? Here's the problem. Because we're sinful human beings, we like to kind of pick and choose who our neighbor is, right? We, we like to kind of pick and choose, all right, who exactly am I supposed to love and who's kind of exempt? Because there's people that are really easy to love and then there are people that would prefer not to love. And so it'd be really convenient if I could kind of define who my neighbor is. And so, and so Jesus ran into this all the time. He had all these people who would come up to him and kind of say, hey, can you kind of explain to me who my neighbor is, right? And one of the most famous examples of this is in Luke 10, um, this lawyer walks up to him and he says, hey, um, I know the law. I know it, it you know, hinges on kind of two major commands that you love God and that you love your neighbor as yourself. But man, who is my neighbor? And what he's asking is a question that we've probably all asked at some point in time, which is, are there certain people that I don't have to love? 
Are there certain people that I don't really have to love? Is there something that can maybe disqualify them? Is there some kind of caveat? Like who exactly is my neighbor? And so what Jesus does is he tells him this story, this racially charged story about this guy called the Good Samaritan is what we've named, named him. And in this culture, the Samaritans were hated by the Jewish people. They were hated by them. And in this story, this guy gets robbed. He gets beaten to a pulp. And this guy's fellow Jewish brothers just walk on past him. Don't show him any grace. Don't show him any mercy. They don't stop to help, help him. But this Samaritan shows up, and this guy goes over the top for him. I mean, he's, he's spending his own money. He's bandaging his wounds. He's like, protecting him. He's risking his own life to take care of this guy. And it's this, this really kind of awkward moment where like, the point of the story is extremely clear. And he gets to the end of the story, and he says, all right, so according to this, who would you say is the neighbor? And the guy can't even say the Samaritan. He just can't even, oh, like, he just can't even say it. He says, the one who showed mercy. He's like, yeah. And in that moment, it's just kind of this like hush over the crowd because what Jesus does is Jesus defines who our neighbor is. He like changes the definition of who we're supposed to love. And in this, he defines that your neighbor is literally everybody. Your neighbor is literally everybody. There's no exemption. There is no one that you don't have to love. Saying your neighbor, when you are to love your neighbor as yourself, your neighbor is everybody. No one is exempt, right? So so, so first off, Jesus changes the definition of, of who we are to love. But what he does here is he adds to it. And he adds on to what he has already established in his time. And he changes the metric of who we're supposed to love and how we're supposed to love. Right? Because he's, he's already established that, that we are to love everybody. We are to love one another. But then he goes on to say, hey, a new command. Right? Listen up. This is new. Before I die, I want you to know this. Drill this into your heads. A new commandment. That you are to love one another. But, but I'm changing how it's measured. I'm changing the metric. But I want you to specifically love people the way that I have loved you. I want you to love people, not just as yourself anymore, not, not simply just love them as yourself. I want you to go the extra mile. I want you to love them like I have loved you. And by this, that's how people are going to know that you follow me. And so in this moment in time, the disciples are kind of left to think, all right, what does it mean to love people like you? And so immediately they just start thinking about how Christ has loved them thus far. And, and even that would be an overwhelming thought because, I mean, if you read the Gospels, Jesus is so over the top in how he loves his disciples and how he just loves people. So that alone would have been a challenge. But in a few hours, he makes this command unmistakably clear. In a few hours, he is going to lay down his life for the sins of the world. And in that moment, the disciples go, oh, that's what he meant. Oh, and he says that the new metric is that we love people like he loved us. That means we love them with sacrifice. We love them with grace. We love them with kindness, with compassion. We lay down our lives for our neighbor. This is a, a massive command. Now, maybe you're thinking, All right, what does this have to do, do with work? Great question. Glad you asked. Here we go. Let me tie this in. I think when we read this, typically Christians are, are, are pretty good 
at applying this command, applying this idea of, of loving people like Christ, we're pretty good at applying this to family, to friends, even to strangers, like people that cut us off in traffic and stuff like that, right? But we function, we function as if this command does not apply to the people that we work with. We function like this very specific command to love one another as Christ has loved us. We function like this does not apply to the people that we work with. And if you don't believe me, just think about how we kind of interact with people at work. For instance, oftentimes we don't view the people at work as community because we're too busy viewing them as competition. I don't know if you've ever had that moment in time when you're in the office and you see someone new walking around and you immediately feel threatened, right? All of a sudden you see him and you're like, who's that? Do, are, are they on our team? Do they do what I do? Are they better than me? Are they... Are they an intern? Because that's cool. Um, are they like, like, you know, like, like all of a sudden you start kind of thinking about who is this person? What are they doing here? Are they going to threaten what I'm doing here? And all of a sudden you just kind of spiral. Why? Because in no way are we trying to love that person like Christ loves the church, loves us. And because if that would happen, we'd say, hey man, you're new. Welcome to the team. What's your story? Happy you're here. But instead, we're too busy feeling threatened because we think you could potentially ruin my dreams, my plans, my financial security. And so what happens is that we're too busy viewing people as competitors. And when you view the people around you as competitors, there's literally no way to have deep, rich, robust community that looks like the love that Christ has shown to us. Another example. Oftentimes in the workplace, we're very low on grace, right? Oftentimes in, um, if someone that you're in a relationship with drops the ball, if a friend drops the ball, uh, if your parent drops the ball, like usually it's pretty easy to come to a place where we can offer them grace. Hey, it happens, no big deal. I forgive you, great, moving on, right? But when you're in the workplace and someone drops a ball that affects the bottom line, when someone drops the ball that makes you look bad, when someone drops the ball that, that botches the deal that you've been working on for six months, when someone drops the ball that, that injures somebody else, there's a lot less grace, isn't there? And all of a sudden you start looking around and, and maybe you've been on the receiving end of that and, and you know that feeling when, when people just begin to judge others or maybe even judge you for being incompetent. You're like, man, can I just get a second chance? Or on the flip side, you've, you've been in that call culture. And so you're terrified to make a mistake because what you see is that there's no grace around you. So you start to blame shift, right? If you make a mistake, it's like, man, I can't own, own this because I don't know what could happen. So now I'm, I'm going to blame the economy. It's our distribution center. It's that guy over there. It's the intern. He messed it up, right? And so all of a sudden we just start to, to shift blame. Why? Because oftentimes there's a culture in the workplace where we don't extend grace to one another. Why? Because we have neglected to apply this command. Or lastly, let me just give you one last example of this. Maybe the friends that you do have at work, the, the camaraderie, the bond that you have is all founded on division. Maybe the only friends that you have at work are the friends that you have a bond with over the fact that you both think your boss is an idiot, right? Maybe your, your bond is over the fact that you cannot stand Jim over in the corner because he eats a tuna salad every day for lunch and it stinks up the office, Right? Maybe there, there, there are certain bonds that you have at work. And you think, oh yeah, I love that guy. Why? Because well, we both hate that guy. Huh? Right? 
The reason why sometimes our relationships at work are founded on division is because we have neglected to apply this command to love one another as Christ has loved us. And so I think if we were to really break it down, the majority of the dysfunction in the workplace, the majority of the time, why our relationships tend to be so much more shallow at work than they are outside of work is because somewhere along the way, we've bought this idea that this command of Jesus for us as his followers to love one another as Christ has loved us, for some reason, we just think that it doesn't apply to the people that we work with. And that's why we get coworkers and work friends Best case scenario, we got work, work friends, right? But the gospel has the ability to change all of this. I think that if we were people who said, man, I am going to allow the gospel to transform my heart and my life in such a way that it's gonna transform and renew the community around us, I think we have this phenomenal opportunity when you go into the workplace to play a part, to be a change agent in renewing the community there. So in the time that we have left, I wanna get really specific. Um, I want to give us kind of three uh, practical suggestions. I mean, this could play out a hundred ways, but I want to give just three really bottom shelf practical suggestions about how you can go to the workplace tomorrow and begin to make changes and begin to, to be a change agent and allowing the gospel to shape and transform your community at work. And here's the first thing. First thing that I would encourage you to do is to take an interest in the people around you to take an interest in the personal lives of the people that you work with. I think one of the most compelling ideas that, that comes along with the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the God of the universe desired relationship with us. That the God of the universe took an interest in us. Right? Because if you read the scriptures, what we find is that sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. Ephesians Two says, says that by our sin, we are made children of wrath. Colossians 1 says our sin alienates us from God. Romans 5 says that we are enemies of God because of our sin. Yet the God of the universe said, I'm going to reconcile that relationship. I'm going to seek out relationship with, with you. Check out what Romans 5 says. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. One of the most beautiful truths in the world is that the God of the universe left his throne to reconcile the relationship that we had broken with God. Because God wants to know us. He, he sought out relationship with us. That's, that's crazy, right? And so we, we see that so clearly in the gospel itself, but also if you just look at the way that Jesus lived his life, man, he modeled constantly this idea of just taking an interest in people that no one else had an interest in. And it changed people's lives. Like it, was, it was magnetic. People flocked to Jesus because no one had ever experienced this, right? Like one, one of my favorite exam, examples of this is that there, there was this dude named Zacchaeus uh, who was the chief tax collector, which means that he was hated. He ripped off a lot of people. Um, and like he was a social outcast, right? And G, Jesus is walking down the road and Zacchaeus is up in a tree because he's short. And Jesus is, is, is just walking, doing his thing. And he looks up and he says, yo, Zach, I'm coming to your house, bro. Hop down, 
scurry down, however you get down, and uh, you and I are gonna go hang out, right? And everyone is like, dude, do you, do you know who that is? And he's like, yeah, that's Zacchaeus. I just said his name. He's like, no, no, no. Like, but do you like know who he is? Like, like this dude is a bad guy. Like no self-respecting religious person would ever hang out with a guy like Zacchaeus. And he's like, well, I will. And he goes and he spends time with Zacchaeus. And if you read that, the passage, Zacchaeus' life is transformed forever. He cannot be the same after encountering Jesus. And that began because Jesus simply took an interest in a person that no one else took an interest in. I think that, that something very powerful can happen in our work, workplace if we decide to model that. If we just go to the people around us and say, hey man, do you want to get lunch? I, I've realized we like straight up work three feet away from each other and I don't know anything about you. I don't know anything about your kids. I don't know anything about your home life. And I don't even know anything about, about your story. I mean, do, you, do you just want to get lunch and just, I just want to know, know you. Or just walking by someone's desk who looks like they're having a bad day and like genuinely asking, hey, are you okay? And the odds are they'll say, yeah, 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 I'm cool. But like, no, 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 like, like you, you look sad. Are you okay? Like, let's, let's talk. Because I think the reality is there are so many people that spend 13 years and two days of their life going to a job working for eight hours a day, sometimes 10 hours a day, and then they get in the car and they drive home and they're not known, they're not loved. They spend all day around people that literally do not care about them. And there is something so compelling when we as followers of Christ have this motivation saying, man, the God of the universe sought me, sought relationship with me, yeah, the least I can do is seek out relationship with the people that I work with. I can take an interest in who they are and get to know them and their story. It's incredibly, incredibly compelling. So the first su suggestion would be to simply take an interest in the people around you. But the second is this, to love the people around you with grace and truth. To love the people around you with grace and truth. Here's what I mean. Oftentimes in the workplace, we begin to feel like in, in order to love the people around us, we have to choose between grace or truth, right? Like one of the two. Um, and so what happens is that if you're a grace person, you have been in situations where you understand the harshness sometimes of truth. And so, so you, you think I'm gonna create a culture, I'm gonna lead people, I'm gonna love people, I'm gonna interact with the people around me with grace. I mean, I'm, I'm just gonna lavish them with grace. And so if they screw up, if they drop the ball, I'm gonna be like, hey, you know what? You're good, get up, we're, we're cool. I forgive you, rah, rah, the second chances, right? And so all of a sudden, I mean, you were just making them in full love and letting them know, I mean, there's grace upon grace and you're good and we're fine and we're awesome. And that's incredible. Like, that, like that's a good thing. Like, like, like we need cult cultures in the workplace where people know that they can make a mistake. Where pe people know that they can have a second chance because we all make mistakes. There needs to be a level of grace. But what happens is that if you're all grace and no truth, then you create a culture of mediocrity where you begin to inadvertently give people permission just to keep dropping the ball because there's no consequences for their actions. No one's bold enough to say, hey, like, no, like, that's not okay. Like, you can't do that. Like, that's not healthy. Like, and so all of a sudden, people just kind of begin to, to slide because no one's holding them accountable. Right? But on the flip side, 
Maybe you're like, man, I've been in those workplaces where you play ping pong and you sing Kumbaya and you do all that weird techie stuff and like it's way too grace heavy. I'm going truth, right? Because people cannot learn, they cannot grow, they cannot develop if they don't understand what they did wrong. So I'm gonna lovingly inform them on the truth of where they screwed up. And so all of a sudden you are just truth, truth, truth. You, you did this and this and this. And, and granted, it's all important. It's all with the desire for them to grow and to learn and to get better. And that's also important. But if you have a culture where it's all truth and no grace, then people begin to walk on eggshells. People are terrified of making a mistake because there's no grace. You don't know what's going to happen. And you're like, oh man, I already know that I messed up. I already know, like, ah, I don't want another lecture. And you're, and you're just ter- terrified. Because we, have, because we think sometimes we have to choose between grace or truth. But what we see through the life of Christ is that he loved us with grace and truth. He walked this line perfectly of saying, hey, there is, here is the truth. I'm going to pair that with grace. I'm, grace, I'm going to allow you to understand that there is both grace and truth, right? Um, an awesome example of this. <clears throat> In Mark 2, Jesus uh, calls this guy Levi to follow him. Uh, Levi, like Zacchaeus, is a tax collector. So again, hated dude, ripped a lot of people off, made a ton of cash off of uh, shortchanging his friends. Um, and so all of a sudden, Jesus, out of nowhere, is like, hey, I want you to be my disciple. I want you to follow me. Again, that created gasps. But then he says, all right, and I want you to throw a party tonight with all of your tax collector friends, and we're just going to go hang out, enjoy each other, talk, do all that, right? And it's like, great. So they go, and they have this awesome party. And the Pharisees, these like religious dudes, they, they walk up, and they just stand outside the party, and they like kind of stare at the house, which is weird because we have laws against that now. Um, but they were like, just like, kind of like, you know, staring into the house, and they're talking amongst themselves, and they're like, all right, um, I have no category for why Jesus is hanging out with these people. I got, like, I've, I've literally no category for how he can justify hanging out with these people. And Jesus just says the most beautifully eloquent statement. It's uh, up on the screen. It says this. It says, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Isn't that beautiful? And as And as New Testament believers who are on the receiving end of grace, we read that and we think, man, Jesus was so gracious, so kind. Like, man, how loving of him just to go, like, love those sinners so well. But what do you hear if you're Levi? What do you hear if you're one of Levi's friends? Wait, what? Did you just say that I'm sick? Did you just say that that I'm sick? That I'm sick. Did, did you just say that I'm a sinner? Like how, like you have the audacity to tell me that? And he's like, yeah. Yeah, like grace and truth, man. Like the truth is you are in desperate need of healing and restoration. But I am the good physician. Like I've, I've got you. There's grace in me. There's forgiveness in me. I have the ability to take broken people, make them whole. It's, it's this beautiful balance of grace and truth. And so what we need to, to, to do in loving people in the workplace Let's find that balance of being grace and truth. And can I just say, if you lead people, if you are a manager, if you lead teams, then this is unbelievably important. Because I think as believers, we need to call people to be excellent. We, we need to challenge people to grow and to be better and to continue to grow. I mean, there are far too many Christians that do mediocre work. And the fact that the name of Christ is associated with mediocrity, it, 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 it's just sad. So, so we need to call people to be better, to grow, to be excellent. But there is a way for you to challenge your people 
that nourishes their soul. And there's a way to challenge your people that crushes their spirit. There's a way for you to call people to action that, that is refreshing and nourishing to the soul. And then there are ways for you to challenge them that literally crushes their spirit. And the difference is whether you can love them with grace and truth versus grace or truth. We have to find that balance of grace and truth. But lastly, <clears throat> we need to serve people with genuine selflessness. We serve the people around us with genuine selflessness. <clears throat> the sad reality oftentimes in the workplace is that we serve others with an agenda. That we serve others thinking, all right, well, if I do this for you, then, then down the road, you're gonna do this for me. Or if I um, cover you here, then down the road, you'll cover me here, right? And, and so all of a sudden, we're, we're not serving people, we're just making deals. We're not actually serving anybody, we're, we're serving people with an agenda, right? And that's not the model that Jesus left for us. In fact, he, he left a drastically different one in, in Philippians 2, it says, it says this, I think this is a beautiful passage. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I love that. Because the model that Jesus has left for us, the way that he has loved us is that although he is and was and always will be God, this text says that he did not count equality with God a thing that he was rightfully entitled to, although he was. But instead, he humbled himself. He emptied himself. He, he left his throne and he became a man. He became a servant. And he was born in a feeding trough and he walked around homeless for three years and he loved people that no one else wanted to love and he had compassion on people that no one else wanted to have compassion on and then he allowed his own creation to beat him mercilessly to mock him to rip the beard from his face and to drive nails through his wrists and through his feet and ultimately take his life why? So that you and I can have life rather than the death that we have rightfully earned. So the model that Jesus left for us is not, I'll do this if you do this for me later. The model that he left is I'm going to, to leave my throne. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to serve you by dying the most barbaric, humiliating, excruciating death imaginable and I'm gonna offer you salvation whether or not you even accept it. That's what I'm willing to do. He served us. And so for us in the workplace, and the model that we have is laying down our power, laying down our privilege, laying down our entitlements to genuinely selflessly serve the people around us with no agenda. And I think that would be absolutely shocking to people. That's so foreign, so foreign to, to just genuinely serve someone out of just a love for who they are and just wanting to bless them. And did you catch what Jesus said would happen if we love people like this? Did you catch what Jesus said would happen if we love people the way that he has loved us, if we lay down our lives for people? 
If we, if we love them with grace and truth, if we took an interest in who they are, they are it's in verse 35, he says, by this, by how you love them, if you love them like me, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In loving people the way that Christ has loved us, we not only have the opportunity to help renew and transform the culture around us when it comes to relationships, but we also get to make much of Jesus. We, we get to make much of him. People get to, to say, all right, this is foreign to me. N- no one cares about who I am. What's different about you? No one has been so, so balanced in a way where there's grace and truth. What's how does that happen? No one really ever serves me just to serve me. That's so foreign to me. What's, what's happening? We get to make much of Jesus because by this, this is how people know that we are followers of Christ. But let me tell you one, one last story and we'll um, shut it down. Um, I had a chance to talk to uh, one of the dads of one of our college students um, a while ago and we were talking about work work stuff, and as someone who works with people who are going into the workforce and those who are already in the work, workforce, I'm, I'm always very curious as to kind of what the perception of believers are in the working world. And, and he told me this, and he's a believer. He said, he said, I think that we've gone the wrong way about teaching our people how to witness to others at work. He says, because what I typically see um, I'll walk by someone's desk and they're having a quiet time at 10.30 in the morning. And what happens is that they, they think, oh, if, if I'm reading my Bible, if I'm reading Jesus Calling or I'm reading some article at my desk and others see that I'm devoted to the Lord, then they're gonna ask me about my devotion to the Lord and that my devotion to the Lord at work is going to show them that I'm a follower of Christ. He says, that's not how it works. What that communicates isn't that you're devoted to the Lord, it communicates that you're lazy. It communicates that you're not doing the job that you're paid to do while everyone else around you is working. So what that communicates is that, like, you're lazy. He says, and, and, and I hate that. He's like, I hate that that's the perception because that's, that's not what allows pe- people right off the bat to know that you're a believer. He says, what I found to be true over and over and over again, though, is the best witness we have in the workplace is when people think, man, that person loves people better than anyone else I've ever seen. That person works harder, works harder for other people. He serves people better than other people. He cares. He leads his team. She leads her team in ways that it's so loving and kind and gracious. And there's this weird balance of grace and truth. Like I got nailed to the wall, but I felt so loved by it. Like, 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 like that's the crazy part. He's like, he's like, the way that people identify that we're followers is not by the fact that we're reading a gospel coalition article at our desk. That communicates that we're not doing our job how we love people. And I never thought of it like that before, but as he was talking, I thought, man, he's, he's absolutely right. Because what Jesus so clearly said is that people aren't going to know that you're my disciples if you read Gospel Coalition at 11 o'clock in the morning. People are going to know that you're my disciples by how you love one another. That if you love one another as I have loved you, that's how people are going to know you're mine. And so the question before us is very, very simple. Are we willing to love people the way that Christ has loved us in the workplace? Because I think that if we are, that if we're willing to love people like 
that, then it's only a matter of time before the gospel begins to transform the community around us. And work friends just become friends. That coworkers become brothers, that become sisters. That you get to spend 13 years and two days of your life helping foster deep, rich, robust community that makes much of Jesus. And that's my hope, that's my prayer. Let me pray for us. Father, you um, have so graciously and clearly um, laid out for us what it means to, to love people like you. <clears throat> and my hope is that as, as people who have been on the receiving end of your grace and of your love, that we are moved, that we are challenged to love people in the over-the-top ways that you have loved, loved us. And God's not lost on me that maybe there are our brothers and sis sisters in the room who, who have deep wounds from the people that they work with. People who may hear this and think, man, I, I hear you, but I, I just don't want to. God, will you give us the eyes to see people as you see them? Will you give us the humble posture to extend forgiveness where we need to extend forgiveness? Will you give us a heart for the people around us that propels us to love them in ways that look just like you? And will you graciously do a work in our workplaces? God, we love you. We thank you. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. What a great reminder of how we're supposed to love each other. Maybe that's foreign to you. Maybe you feel distant, unlovable, or you've just plain had a hard time feeling connected and loved in church in the past. God didn't design it to work like that. When I came to renovate, I was deeply lonely and looking for friends who loved Jesus and would love me. And here, I found the community that Josh told us to hope for and build. If you're in Texas near Fort Worth, I'd love to meet you in person. Come join us at Renovate. Wednesday nights at 7, we have free dinner for those who show up 45 minutes early. And if you want more updates from Renovate, join us online at renovateftw.org or follow us on social media at renovateftw.